Our passage again is from Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? This is the word of our Lord. There's an important thing to notice about this passage that uh, actually doesn't show up uh, explicitly in the passage. And that is that this passage is set in the context of God's purposes even when many reject him. Christians in this congregation in Rome, both Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians, they're coming to grips with God's plan for uh, the Jewish people who uh, actually reject Jesus, the Messiah, the one who is promised in the Old Testament, the very oracles that the Jews have received. When God is rejected by the people of Israel, does that mean that his purposes have somehow failed? If those people who are close to God reject him, is God's plan still in effect? The question actually is opposed earlier than our passage in Romans chapter 11, verse 1. And I think this sets us straight for understanding the passage at hand this morning. In Romans 11, 1, Paul says, has God rejected his people? And Paul says that God has not rejected his people. They are of Israel, and yet some of them have turned their noses up at Jesus. How can they be both God's special people and at the same time those people who actually reject God's special son, Jesus? God must have rejected this group. But Paul says, nope, God hasn't rejected them. But they have rejected God. And I want us to pay close attention to something. This reality of a people who seem to be close to God, ought to be close to God, and yet have rejected God, this very reality can be viewed from the perspective of uh, those who have rejected God and from the perspective of God himself. Let me tell you what I mean by that. From the perspective of those who have rejected God, the decision is made. As Jews, they grew up up with Jewish scripture. They grew up with uh, the worship of the Jews. They grew up with the history of Israel. uh, But they decided they cannot follow this Jesus. They've made a decision and they have moved on with life. From their perspective, it's done. It's like a decision that I made a long time ago. The time is past. I, I can't change that. It's done. It's over. The problem is neutralized. No regrets. Now, that's from the perspective of those who have rejected Jesus. It's neat and it's tidy. They've said no to Jesus and they've gone on with life. But what about that same situation from the perspective of God? If the people of God, a people who he himself has called for his own people, people he himself has named Israel, people whom he has privileged, has cared for, if these people have rejected God, Is this the end of the story from God's perspective? 
Do you understand the question? It's different now. God has placed his attention on a specific people, some of whom have the desire and the ability to turn away from him, to reject his son, and to just walk away. Well, it seems as though if that's the case, then God himself is handicapped, because here he is, he made a great plan, fashioned from before the foundations of the world, and one Jewish person has listened to the gospel found it lacking, and then pulled the plug on God's plan, turned and walked. Now, from God's perspective, when a member of his special family has the power to reject him and does reject him, is God still in control? Or is the book closed? That's a different way to uh, wrap your minds around the fact that there are people who would seem to be close to God, and yet they have rejected God. And that question ought to reverberate in the back of our minds when we come to verse 11 of chapter 11. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? Well, that question has to do with God's purpose, even though he's been rejected is it, that, is it simply that easy to exit God's plan? You live a Jew into, a, into adulthood. You uh, hear the gospel of Jesus proclaimed by the church. You refuse to believe in this Jesus. And you walk away as a Jew who rejects Jesus and it's done. God has been neutralized. His plan is over for me. It makes God's plan look like a, a pile of Jenga blocks, doesn't it? Easy to topple over. Here's how I did it. I said no to Jesus. And the plan's done. Well, God is in control. That's why the question in verse 11 of chapter 11 is there. Uh, Did they stumble in order that they might fall? And Paul is going to answer that question by saying, no, God is in control. How can we find any evidence of God's control when Jesus is so handily denied by those otherwise closest to God? This is a little bit like asking, what in the world good can come of something that is so absolutely horrible? What is more horrible than the rejection of Jesus? There's nothing more horrible than that. And yet, God is still in control. Here's what I think the passage is telling us because of Paul's question. The rejection of God doesn't neutralize God's sovereignty rejecting him doesn't neutralize his sovereignty. By God's sovereignty, a person who rejects Jesus is still exposed to the gospel, especially through those who have not rejected Jesus. To reject Jesus is not to neutralize the plan of God. That's what Paul wants us to understand. And so really the question of verse 11 is a question about God's sovereignty, and how that sovereignty works. It's the very setting of the passage. What exactly is sovereignty? The Bible's insistence over and over again is that God is a master who's in complete control of all things. Now, you might not uh, like that thesis, but the Bible says that over and over again. God is completely and utterly in control of all things. This is the Bible's insistence. God's will is involved in everything that's created, 
And then God sustains and preserves everything that is created. And everything that happens, happens by the will of God. Uh, The master does whatever he pleases. Uh, All earthly kings are in his hands. Salvation itself belongs to him. Uh, He is in control even over such as the suffering of Jesus. He is in control of the regeneration of believers. He is in control of the life and destiny of humanity. And even the very smallest things in life like sparrows of the air and the hairs on your head head are subject to the control of God. He is sovereign. And the Bible never gives us an opportunity to set that sovereignty aside because things have gone so wildly wrong. And so the setting of our passage is the sovereignty of God even despite, even despite this human rejection. Now, we've already been taught in Romans uh, repeatedly that we need to understand Paul's deliberate questioning before we can understand his answer uh, to the question. And this question is intended to show us three things about how God's sovereignty works. Three things about how God's sovereignty works. And he describes the way God's sovereignty works first in the way that the story of redemption works. The way the story of redemption works tells us about God's sovereignty. And the way rejection works tells us about God's sovereignty. And then the way the gospel works tells us about God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is everywhere in this passage. And let me show you how. First, the sovereignty of God is shown in the way that the story of redemption works. Now, Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians are asking in Romans 11, verse 1, has God rejected his people? And part of the reason that they ask this is because they've been preaching the gospel to these individuals. They know that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But their hearers don't believe. So perhaps God has rejected them, but Paul has told them already by no means. He hasn't rejected them. It's not something that God has done. It's something that they have done and are doing. They are the ones whose eyes do not see and whose ears do not hear. They are the ones who have killed the prophets. They are the ones who have bowed the knee to the god Baal and to the goddess Asherah. And because they do not believe in the gospel, they actually look absurd to uh, outsiders. Uh, Your God has given you every advantage, and yet you refuse to bow your knees to your own God's son, Jesus But remember, God has not rejected them. Instead, he has remained very much in control despite the fact that some have rejected him. Their rejection is actually, it's their own doing. None of us, Gentiles or Jews, have any excuse for failing to follow Jesus. No one on earth has any excuse to not bend the knee before Jesus. Reject Jesus... And you'll be judged for that rejection. Paul's very clear about this. In Romans chapter 2, Paul asks if we think that we uh, have managed to escape God's judgment. Do you think that? You're wrong. God's judgment will be revealed and he will render to each one according to his works. Paul says that God judges even the secrets of man. No one is going to escape for rejecting God. But that rejection, even still... It's actually contained in God's will. That's a very hard thing to imagine. 
In verse 8 of our passage, Paul quotes, uh, I'm sorry, of last week's passage, Paul quotes Isaiah. And, and as he quotes Isaiah in verse 8 of chapter 11, uh, he says, God gave them a spirit of stupor. They reject God of their own will, and yet God is still sovereignly in control. And, and this is mysterious to be sure, but the real problem with this scenario is not that some of the Jews have rejected God. Right, That actually makes sense to us, that some people, they just have a problem with Jesus and they refuse to believe in him. Uh, For people to reject God, that actually makes a whole lot of sense. It makes sense that some people have a problem with Jesus because, in fact, some of you in this room are on the fence with regards to Jesus. You're not sure if you're ready to give all of your life to him. Uh, You uh, understand that rejection of Jesus is on the table for you, as it were. Every every believer in this room should understand that belief in Jesus uh, means actually believing some rather uh, challenging things about yourself. The Bible says that I'm not my own master. In my own conversion, I remember struggling with that. The Bible calls a rejection of Jesus a rejection with horrible, horrible consequences. But the Bible never says that your rejection of Jesus makes God go away. You can reject him all you want. And I understand as a Christian why you might want to reject Jesus. I understand. I have felt that as well. In fact, I continue to feel it, that Jesus says things about me, leads me places Well, they're not things I would say about myself or places into which I'd normally go. I get rejection of Jesus, and many of you in this room get rejection of Jesus as well. But reject him all you want, he is still sovereign. And that's the truth that Paul wants to communicate with the question in verse 11. Did they stumble merely in order that they might fall? Or is there something more that's happening here? Is there something more that's happening even in their rejection? I think uh, all of us have been uh, uh, working on a document on our computers and uh, we'll insert an image into that document and then we'll move the image around to make sure it's right and we'll change the dimensions of the image. And then uh, sometimes the image doesn't work and we just kind of slide it out of the picture. Everyone knows what I'm talking about, right? You just grab the image and you just slide it out of the picture and it goes away. We use another illustration. Some of us uh, have fallen out of love with furniture in our house. It's old, it's tired for some reason, but you put it up on Craigslist and boom, it's gone. It's just gone. Well, how about another illustration? Uh, we know what to do when uh, an odd growth appears on our body or an odd growth appears inside our bodies. And we go to the doctor and hopefully the doctor is able to make the growth go away. You see, there are people who do not believe in Jesus. And there are people with certain advantages that make it seem as though they really should believe in Jesus. They grew up in a Christian home. They have been close to Christians. They are surrounded by Christians. And yet, they don't believe in Jesus. They reject him. But has God rejected them in the same way? That's the problem. He hasn't. He's still sovereign. They've cast God out of their minds, but God has not cast them out of his own mind. 
You can try all you want to push God to the edges of your document to shove him outside of and beyond all of your creative enterprises so that you can be you. But he's still there. And you can try to push him out of your house like tired old furniture, but he's still there. And you can surgically, surgically remove him from your body, heart, mind, strength, soul, so that you never think about him again. But he's still there. He doesn't leave. You can't shake him off. You can't pawn him off. You can't cut him off. He, he's just there. Christianity. It's such a strange religion in that God claims the entire cosmos to himself. Uh, He made it and he made you. And God, he has actually written everything into this story that nobody ever has the power to choose their own adventure in. There's no way that you can remake God's story so that it fits you better. You're in that story whether you want to be in that story or not. You may feel illustriously empowered to live your life in any way that you please. And people may be praising you for this. You might be surrounded by people who say, Oh, I wish that I could have the life that you so unencumbered live. Doing the job that you love. Traveling all over the world. Knowing how to dress so fashionably. Being so pretty and so funny. Gee, if only I could live your life. Now that's silly, isn't it? But you may be reaping the praise of others for the story of life that you've created for yourself. But you do not have that luxury with God. Reject him all you want. He is there. Everything about your story. Everything about your story fits inside of and is ultimately governed by God's story. Everything about your place in God's story has to do with one man, and his name is Jesus. And you can reject him. And you can carry on in your life with that rejection. And you can receive the praise of others with that rejection. But you will stand before him face to face, and you will rapidly immediately come to understand that your globe-trotting, beautiful story was very provincial and ugly by comparison to God's own story. Your rejection of God, it's not the end. He's sovereign, and you can reject him, but you can't neutralize him. So what Paul is doing is he's describing the sovereignty of God, but he is, he's describing uh, actually uh, how the sovereignty of God works in the story of redemption. He is about to say things that apply even to those who thought that God had been so rejected that he has nothing more to say to them. I've, after all, rejected you. The sovereignty of God in the way the story of redemption works. You cannot escape God's story. But also the sovereignty of God in the way that rejection works. You see, Paul's word for stumble, it it doesn't show up elsewhere in Romans. It just shows up here. And so it's a little hard to discern what exactly he means by stumbling. It could be something rather innocent, a little trip, tripping over a floor mat, sprinkler head, 
But it could mean something a bit more serious. When James uh, uses this word, uh, James uses the word uh, a few times. And when he uses it, he uses it to describe simply uh, sinning, the kind of thing that we do even as Christians. Uh, James says, for we all stumble in many ways. It's just about our sin. But when Paul says, did they stumble in order that they might fall, he seems to be referring to a more significant stumbling, doesn't he? In Romans 9, verse 6, Paul has said that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. There are people who seem in every way to belong to Israel, but they don't believe in Jesus. And even though they have had every historical and cultural and religious advantage, they don't call on Jesus as their Lord. So when Paul says, did they stumble with reference to the past, he's uh, talking specifically about something more profound than simply uh, sinning as a part of the Christian life for which we need to confess. The stumbling is a profound denial of Jesus. And if left, it's going to ruin people for eternity. And this is why Paul replaces the word stumble later with the word trespass. Do you see that in front of you? In the next two verses, uh, the word trespass really works to replace the word stumble. Uh, And this word trespass is actually trickling down in Paul's letter uh, all the way from Romans chapter 5. And the word trespass, it refers to a final trespass, Adam's trespass, our own trespass, and the need for rescue in the story of redemption. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that man and led to condemnation for all men. Paul says that this is the very reason for Jesus' perfect life and his punishment on the cross. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, Romans 4.25. And so the reason this question has to do with the purposes of God is because of what follows in the question, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Now, the word fall is connected to the word trespass and it's, the exact, it's exactly the result of that trespass. The word fall refers to that which someone deserves for stumbling over Jesus. This fall refers to that which someone deserves for their trespasses. This fall is the condemnation of God that is precisely what men and women under the representation of Adam actually deserve. And so the kind of stumbling that Paul is referring to is organically connected to the fall that each of us deserve. You see, to reject Jesus is to fall before Jesus at judgment. Everyone who is asking this question in the church at Rome knows this. That's why they ask, did they stumble simply that they might fall? Did they stumble simply that they might be judged by God, judged by Jesus, and eternally punished for that stumbling? Is that it? Their rejection exists to prove their damnation? Now, if nothing else, what Paul is showing us is that rejection of Jesus is very serious. That if you reject Jesus right up to your deathbed, you will be judged by that Jesus for that rejection. That's what Paul wants us to understand. The seriousness of rejecting Jesus. He is not denying that the rejection will, as they die, lead to an eternal damnation. He's not rejecting that. Uh, there's a, um, 
a scientist who died in the early 90s by the name of Lewis Thomas. I don't care very much for science. I don't read a lot of science. Uh, But this man happens to have been an essayist and a poet. And so I've become interested in him over over time. And he describes science in such a way that it helps someone like me who is so ignorant about science. Uh, He's very creative. He says, look, isn't it odd that we just never see very much death around us? And he gives this example to describe what he means. He says, look, um, scientists tell us that in um, a a square mile space um, that goes up a thousand feet contains some 25 million assorted insects. Isn't that interesting? But this is what Lewis Thomas says. He says, look, insects, their lifespan's really short. I mean, they die all the time. But isn't it funny how there could be so many insects, yet we wouldn't see very many dead insects? I mean, if you clean your house, right? And he says, I've lived all of my life with an embarrassment of squirrels in my backyard. They're all over the place, all year long. And he says, I've never seen anywhere a dead squirrel. And he says, "Uh, birds, um, you know, they're all over the place, he says, but um, I I don't see dead birds. They, They seem to do their dying someplace else. They just don't see them. Isn't that interesting? There's death all around us. And what Paul wants us to understand is that to reject Jesus, well, that's, that's to taste your own death. I think this is a good reminder uh, for Christians that to reject Jesus is to live a life that's no life at all. It's to live in your spiritual death with great confidence as if it is eternal life. And it isn't. Death's all around us. Reject Jesus You're spiritually dead. Everything that you have about life that you think is worthy and noble and worth having, it's not. It's useless because you've rejected Jesus. That's what we need to talk about. Death is all around us. Every man and woman who rejects Jesus is living a life of spiritual death. And if they refuse to follow Jesus to the very end of their physical lives, well... Even they will see that their entire life has been a life in spiritual death. To reject Jesus, it's to be a walking dead. That rejection, it's going to cost you. And perhaps you don't believe that now. You surely don't believe that now. And perhaps you're very comfortable ignoring that now. Maybe you're comfortable ignoring that now. But you will believe this one day. And it will be unignorable. And so for the Christian, this is a really powerful image. This ought to strike us. We need to see that a rejection of Jesus is not simply an expression of an opinion. It's something more grave than that. And I actually, I don't mean to depress you, but perhaps I already have. It's too late. But you see, all of us have to deal with Jesus. The story of God leads right to Jesus. We can't ultimately uh, be uh, rejected by God in such a way that I reject him and he goes away. (laughs) But there is a rejection of God that leads you to eternal ruin. You need to take note of this if you're not ready to profess faith in Jesus. You may think that he's gone away. You may think that you can place him on the back burner. But that's not how it works. Rejection of Jesus leads to eternal condemnation. 
But this question, it actually carries us one step further because you see, Paul is telling us about the sovereignty of God by the way the story of redemption works. You can never escape that story. And he's telling us about the sovereignty of God by the way rejection works. Rejection really does lead to eternal condemnation. But there is this gospel possibility in this passage, and let me tell you why. The sovereignty of God can be understood better when we consider the story of redemption and when we consider the nature of rejecting Jesus, his only begotten son. But the sovereignty of God can be understood simply in the way the gospel works. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? The might fall, it's, it's subjunctive mood. Okay, so we've all forgotten English grammar. It's a possibility. They, they, they have rejected Jesus. But they might fall. It may happen. Yes, rejection will ultimately lead to eternal judgment. No doubt about it. But the way the question is phrased, Paul's making a practical application. He says that they might fall because he has just told them in the beginning of Romans 10 that God has called them and sent them as preachers of the gospel that saves They're to preach the gospel so that others might believe. This is how people are saved. And at the very end of the passage, Paul challenges us to consider how glorious it would be uh, if they would become believers. In verse 15, it's almost as if, it's almost as if Paul's enticing the Roman Christians to continue their preaching ministry because these rejectors of Jesus, these who are so hostile to Jesus, if they come to faith, how glorious that picture uh, will be. A picture of those who were called by God's special call. A picture of those who are given the name Israel. A picture who are provided for and preserved over time. Uh, And in that picture, these people reject God's son, their own Messiah. And then, by God's grace, those who are once so close and then so hated Jesus, imagine when they turn to God in repentance bend the knee to their Messiah. How glorious is that picture. And what Paul is doing in this passage is he's actually encouraging the preaching ministry of the church. The preaching works by the word of Christ so that others might believe. And the Roman Christians are looking at these Jews that have so much of God's favor and they've rejected God. Did they reject simply that they would taste eternal damnation? And Paul says, God is still involved. You know, we said earlier that God is the one who preaches the gospel. That God is the one who saves. That no man, uh, no woman, uh, be it their intellect, be it their morals, no one saves another person but God and the regenerative work of his spirit. And what Paul does is Paul takes them back to the words of Moses in Deuteronomy. Uh, Moses warns the people of Israel, even as they're standing on the very edges of the promised land. And he says that if you should deny God, God is going to call people who would surprise you. And those people will make you jealous. The Christians in Rome, they're just, they're so confused. These Jewish people are called to be close to God, and yet they reject God. 
And what is God doing with them? And Paul turns the sovereignty of God upon the work of the gospel. And he says, you are to be God's people to not merely proclaim the gospel, but you are to be God's people who will make them jealous of his presence. What are you called to do, you Roman Christians? Well, he's already said you're called to preach the gospel. But in this passage, he's telling them that you're called to live out that gospel. What do we do, Paul? It seems as though God's rejected them. And if he hasn't rejected them, it seems as God is toying with them. They're rejecting simply for the purpose that they might uh, show what eternal damnation feels like. Is that it? I think Paul has three applications, and I want to I touch on these applications and close. The first application is this. It was mentioned last week. As Christian people as those who have not rejected Jesus but have bowed our knees to Jesus. We are actually called to be proclaimers of the gospel, but the application is this. Don't give up. Don't give up. If you catch yourself thinking that that person has rejected Jesus and they've gone their own way, Paul is saying, don't give up. Even as you ask, well, have they rejected simply to prove the, the, the reality of hell? Is that why they've rejected? Paul says, don't give up. You never have permission to give up. If they don't escape God's sovereign hand, keep preaching. And that's the second application, the first being don't give up. No one has the right to pull the plug on God's sovereign plan. They're still in that story in some way. Don't give up. It is God who regenerates hearts. Don't give up. And the second application is this, is that the preached gospel is the means of salvation. Uh, Paul has already told them that in Romans chapter 10, that you are to be preachers of the gospel. And then Paul describes a scenario in which they keep rejecting Jesus. And Paul is saying, keep preaching the gospel. This is God's means of salvation. And there is no other. It may look as though The pile of blocks, it's about to fall. But it's the gospel that saves. Why would you stop preaching the gospel no matter how bad the pile of blocks looks? God is sovereign, and this is how he saves. And the last application is this. You know, many of us uh, just don't feel confident in the word ministry of the gospel. We don't feel like we're smart enough. We don't feel like we understand the gospel well enough ourselves. We don't uh, feel as though that we can actually uh, penetrate into our relationships at work or uh, in our families or with our friends in order to describe the things of Jesus. We're, We're afraid. We're nervous. We're insecure. But the last application... Paul says to us that we actually are able to preach the gospel simply by living a life of God's presence. Living the Christian life in your personal relationships. Living a life of submission to Jesus and personal holiness in the context of your friendships with your family. Being a Christian in your place of work. That actually, by God's grace, is a measure of God's sovereignty that your life would itself be a preaching of the gospel. Because what Paul says here is that there can be a preaching of the gospel that is just jealousy. I'm stunning those who have rejected Jesus with what the life of Jesus is doing for me now. 
rejection, Paul is saying, it doesn't actually neutralize God's sovereignty. Uh, the, the person who rejects is, is, still, is still within God's attention. God is aware of them. And God has provided for them preachers of the gospel. And some feel confident doing that in their words. But just the very existence of the church of Jesus Christ, a gathering body here every Sunday morning, a, a people who recognize that the people here are not the people that I would choose for as my friends perhaps, but they're my brothers and my sisters because we're united in the spirit, the kind of life that we have together considering others more significant than ourselves. This community is a community that is meant to make others jealous. The love that you have for one another is how the world will know that there's something more than the world that they fashion for themselves by rejecting this Jesus. That should be encouraging. As the church is the church, we are proclaiming something in the world that the world, whether it knows it or not, has a yearning for and has replaced with something trite. Paul's saying that the preaching ministry of the Roman Christians is the kind of preaching that is exhibited simply by living the Christian life. And in God's great mercy, uh, he works in such a way that there would be an aroma of Jesus Christ that would emanate from the church of Jesus Christ. And someone uh, can take notice of this church and be curious and interested and even jealous of that eternal confidence. And this, too, is a working of the gospel. This is the sovereignty of God. In the story of redemption, you cannot reject God ultimately. This is the sovereignty of God in the nature of rejection. Yes, it will bring condemnation to you if you stay in it. And this is God's sovereignty shown in the working of the gospel through words, but also through the Christian life that non-believers would become jealous at the relationship we have with the one true God. Join me in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that the gospel is your instrument for salvation. Would you help us as a church understand that gospel more and more? Would you help us as a church live in that gospel more and more? And would we not lose heart? Our Jesus has overcome the world. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.